everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Sam Black of Covenant Eyes. Uh, Regular listeners will probably be aware of Covenant Eyes, which is an accountability software for your technology that helps you uh, get or remain porn-free. And Sam Black recently authored this phenomenal new book called The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. It's really an incredible book that deals with a whole number of subjects that I've never seen dealt with extensively elsewhere. I've read a lot of books on pornography. I've had a lot of authors of books about pornography come on this show and have the discussion. A lot of great resources exist. And those resources are both included in Sam Black's book, but also he covers a lot of subjects in a very phenomenal way that I haven't found elsewhere. So just to give you a bit of background on Sam, he is the director of recovery education and joined the Covenant Eyes team in 2007 after 18 years as a journalist. And I would add that his journalism chops show in this book. He has edited 16 books on the impact of pornography and speaks at parent men's and leaders events. He is passionate about helping Christians live free from pornography because he knows you can keep what you give away. He walks his own journey with the support of valued allies. I met uh, Sam years ago at a Nicosi conference in Houston, Texas, a, an anti-porn conference, which was a collection of the most eclectic and interesting group of people I've ever think I've ever met in one room. Anyways, this this book is a really important resource, and Sam was was kind enough to spend about an hour chatting about the Healing Church and what we can all learn from it. So, Sam, the first question I wanted to ask you about the Healing Church. Uh, because I was very interested in some of the the data that you cited that I had not read before about the rate of Christians who are now saying that porn is moral is what are a couple of the things that the church gets wrong on pornography or is completely unaware of? Wow, that's a, that's a popper of a first question. Thank you very much. You know, one of the reasons I uh, brought that those statistics to light, uh, and these are secular studies, some of them, others are 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 not, but for the most part, the, many of them came from university studies. And so when one of the things I wanted to make sure I helped a pastor understand that is when he is speaking or she's speaking to a congregation as a as a leader, whether you're leading a, a women's group or a men's group or anything, so many people in the church, um, might have compromised what they consider pornography. And so it's very important for um, sometimes people aren't on the same page with where we are as leaders helping to talk about uh, these destructive issues. Unfortunately, one of the other statistics pointed out is only 7% of churches do anything at all in regard to providing support for uh strongholds of pornography. So we have a double-edged problem is we're not talking about it very much. And when we do talk about it, maybe we're not being very clear about what we're talking about. And so that leaves some going, yeah, what I'm, what I'm doing is okay. One of the conundrums when when you address the, the pornography issue to audiences that I find that your book your book deals with a bit, but I'd like to hear your further opinions on is a conundrum I've also I've often found talking to men about pornography, which is on one hand, um, if 
you make the mistake of shaming them, um, like creating, just like uh, then they're going to go back to the only thing that they know makes them feel good. Usually they're going to go, well, well, that made me feel terrible, so I'm going to go look at porn. And you're exacerbating the shame cycle. On the other hand, I remember being pretty stunned when uh, a young man who had admitted to me he looked at pornography um, and I wanted to get connected with with an accountability partner through Covenant Eyes. And I found out three, four years later, he was he was still looking at pornography. And I asked him, you know, okay, well, well what about it? Uh, what about his journey? Um, um, you know, kind of led him to that place. And one of the things he what he said really shocked me. He said, one of the things that I found is that the statistics you cited in your presentation actually comforted me because it made me realize I'm normal. And one of the reasons I didn't quit looking at porn is I figured if everybody does it, it can't be that bad. And so on one hand, you do have to highlight the horror of pornography, what it's doing to your brain, what it does to your view of the opposite sex, what it does to your ability to have relationships without creating the shame instinct that's profoundly counterproductive. And on the other hand, if you emphasize the scale of the problem too hard, you run the risk. I've found this in other conversations now too, of normalizing pornography to the extent they're like, well, you know what, if, if it's all of us, you know, then it, then it can't be all that bad. How do you square that circle? Isn't that incredible? Wow. I think it is a, is also a good descriptor of the church. And, and I think you'll see the parallel here. Within our local churches, sometimes it's okay to come as you are because, um, hey, everybody's got problems, everybody's struggling in some way. And like you're saying, this young man is saying, uh, since so many, so many men in the church and so many women in the church are struggling with pornography, then, you know, hey, everybody's got their struggles. Just keep coming as you are. You know, God's grace is sufficient. But we're also warned in Scripture not to continue in sin. Should I, when when Paul says, so we're grace bounds, we're, we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So should we keep on sinning? Of course not. No, he warns against that. So on one side is there's a spectrum where it's okay, we've all got problems, but we're never asked to change. On the other side of the spectrum in the church, and in our lives as well, is that there's so much condemnation that Christians aren't supposed to have any struggles or issues in their life, right? So it's okay to not okay to come as you are. And if you do say anything where well, you're shamed and you might be asked to leave, you may, may no longer be, want to be part of this church. Right. What we want to be is it's okay to come as you are, but it's not okay to stay as you are. Right. We we are called to change. We're called to grow and charge. It's come as you are, but we love you too much <laughs> to let you remain the same. And that's not what you want for your own life. Do we want to want to draw closer to Christ? We did a survey among Covenant Eyes members. And we asked, why are you using covenant eyes? Their number one answer, like in the uh, like 95%, something like that, said, I want to draw closer to Christ. Pornography is creating distance in my life from my closeness and feelings of closeness to Christ. And I, I don't want that in my life. I want to remain pure in heart. I want to become pure in heart. And I want pornography, a sin to be 
ripped <laughs> away from my mind, body, and spirit. And so people come in to because they don't they recognize that this is a struggle. So there's a, a few things I want I want to draw from that because another another conundrum um, that I find is the way it, it gets stickier when you're talking about it in the context of a relationship, right? And I know a, like more people than I can count at this point, some of them that I'm very close to have struggled with pornography in their marriage. And communicating these things in that context can be even more difficult because on one hand, you're using the language of, you know, forgiveness and freedom is available. It takes courage to come forward, which I completely agree with. I think that we should, we should normalize coming forward and we should shame specific actions. But the difficult, one, one of the things I was, I was really hoping for your insights on was very often you'll have a, you know, a guy who's say, you know, he's, let's say he's, you know, four weeks free and this is the longest stretch he's gone in years. And he's thrilled, but you know, his, his, his wife is still dealing with, you know, um, the trauma of, of, of being the partner of somebody who's looking at all this stuff, especially if she's unfortunately caught in a glimpse of what he's looking at. Cause everything on the front page of Pornhub is pretty horrifying. And, 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 and she's gets even more upset because he's expecting her to be happy and almost to encourage him for not cheating. And I'll get this often when, when I'm having a conversation with people and the guy's just gotten free and he's kind of like, this is so amazing. This is so great. And for her, it's like, well, we were supposed to start off this way. And so are you telling me I should compliment you for finally not needing to look at other women? And we don't know how to communicate about these things because to some degree, the problems that we're dealing with are new insofar as that the age of first exposure and compulsive exposure is getting younger and younger and younger, as you point out almost immediately in the book. But the guys I used to talk to 10 years ago, most of them saw it at age 14, 15, 16. The guys I talk to now saw it at age five, six, or seven. And so how do you start to create the space where you can communicate these things, where you can stigmatize what should be stigmatized, but also create space for like actually healing and recovering from porn use? So let me wrap up that question, but I think I'm going to repeat it back to you. And that is a, a man and a husband has said, Hey, I look at me, I'm four to six weeks free and uh, I'm, I'm excited. Right. And he should be. And the wife is on the other side saying, man, I've, I feel tortured in my heart, my mind. I feel like betrayal is so fresh. So both it's not that either one is wrong. It is he needs to recognize that indeed she her she's in recovery as well. She's in recovery from uh, betrayal. And this betrayal can feel so in-depth that uh, a number of studies showed symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So, if she's dealing with PTSD over this going, you know, what's he doing now? He's, he's took his phone to the bathroom. He, he's gone to work. He's a little late home. You know, this has been going on, especially if it has crossed the, the flesh line, right? If, what if there's been an affair as well? Maybe there's not been, but either way, the stress, the questioning, the doubt of self-worth, it's crushing. And so as men, we need to step up and recognize, hey, I four to six weeks, man, that that is that's good for me. I I I can 
I'm going to press forward. But also I need to recognize that I've committed betrayal in my marriage. I said to her when we got married, you are the only one. And I have betrayed that trust. And trust, once betrayed, is hard to build back. And it takes time. And you need to trust God. You need to bring others into uh, for support, not only for yourself, but for your marriage. And that's going to be hard. Um, but it needs to be done. It might be that she needs the support of a counselor. There uh, are a number of betrayal trauma groups that really help people work through this, whether you're a man that's been betrayed or a woman that's been betrayed. So there's some support out there. I'd encourage you to get that help and support. There's uh, some things within now. We've launched a new app called the Victory App by Covenant Eyes. Victory App by Covenant Eyes. It's free. And you can download it. In there, it walks you through about 30 different courses currently, but we continually add more. You're going to find no, not only courses with audio that talk about how did I get here, why do I seem to stay stuck, and how can I take my first steps toward freedom, but you'll also find, okay, it's time for me to let my wife know what's been going on, or my spouse. And so... Uh, we have a, a, a disclosure process, a safe disclosure process. How does that work? How do you do this well? Because so often there's a little admission here and then a later admission there and another admission there. And this trickle down thing seems like, hey, I'm easing this my spouse into this, but that is the wrong way to go. So how can we be open and honest, but do it in a safe environment for both of them, right? So we walk you through that process, um, as well as helping women understand or spouses understand, well, why do I feel all this distrust? Why do I feel so hurt? Um, and is that right? Is it valid? And of course it is, but we'll walk you through that as well. So there's some tools within the Victory App by Covenant Eyes that can begin to walk you into a deeper understanding of how do I dress this well? How do we begin to restore our marriage and live? How do I as an individual learn to live in greater freedom? Because four to six weeks, although that sounds good, you're still stuck in addiction, right? You've, uh, at this point, it seems like, man, I'm, I'm doing well, but this is the white knuckle process. It, and it's flipping a coin. It says, Hey, I'm going to do well. I'm going to fight. I'm going to, I failed and I'm, I'm working hard now. But that perfectionism and self-will can only go so long. And then you flip that coin as soon as a trigger hits, a social, emotional, or environmental trigger that's where you have some feelings of self-doubt, you have some anger, you have whatever it is, whatever that trigger is, and then you're back to looking at pornography, and then you feel that over-crushing shame, it's that what I call self-hatred at my expense, where I just myself up and maybe it goes into a binge or whatever else. And then after so long of wallowing in self-contempt, you go, I'm going to try harder again. And we need to get out of the three-day week, four to six weeks cycle and learn to really live in freedom. And so it takes about 14 days for your neuro neurochemical reactions to begin to balance. 
So no longer is your the dopamine cravings going nuts for you or what have you. There's a lot more going on than that. But so about 14 days to reset your neurochemistry, about 30 days to begin gaining some basic confidence that maybe I can live free from pornography. But it takes at least 90 days to begin understanding what intimacy really is. And intimacy, and we've equated sex as intimacy, especially as men. And sex is just one form of intimacy. And as we gain that, that first 90 days is often the first goal. And there's some guys listening or some women listening right now. It's 90 days. I don't, I don't know if I can go 90 days. I'm, I mean, I'm just trying to maintain, right? <laughs> right. I'm just trying to lessen how much pornography I'm using, but you can absolutely totally live free from pornography. I've walked this road. I get it. It feels insurmountable, but truly you can live in to total and absolute freedom from pornography. So I have so many questions. It's hard to know uh, where, 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 where for me to start with this. So I guess coming off of, of what you just said there, one of the things I find um, really interesting with, with people that I've, I've been talking to or have relationships with who are struggling to quit is that a lot of people are very willing to quit pornography, but they're unwilling to admit that giving up pornography might mean giving up other things. It might mean giving up things that are triggers. And it's, I remember this fascinating article um, by Tim Challies where he said, because Christians have accepted so much sexualized entertainment that is overtly pornographic um, as part of their entertainment diet, something you mentioned Game of Thrones in this book as well. Um, he's a, There's a lot of people now who will basically be triggered back into looking at porn. Those neural, those neural pathways are lighting back up again because what they're watching, like it, it genuinely is pornographic, but even when you have something like, let's take Game of Thrones, I think to the to the great shame of the so-called conservative movement, you had a lot of people whose positions I agree with on almost everything who were defending the show as legitimate for people to watch, um, despite the fact that it was it had obviously pornographic content. And it wouldn't just be that show. There's many, many, many different shows. And I had a couple of talks that I recently did on pornography at churches. Um, a lot of the wives were bringing up shows like Yellowstone and saying like, um, my husband watches this. I'm very uncomfortable with it. It has all these scenes. I haven't seen it, but plugged in ca seems to confirm that there's a lot of pretty graphic stuff in there um in addition to that you have i know one guy who kept on falling back into pornography because he had a habit of on the weekend he'd have himself um a nice scotch that would lower his inhibitions just enough that he would always screw up after he had the drink um because he could he could basically get through each day and you know he had all these processes in place and it was fine um and there was nothing wrong with having the scotch but having it pretty much always led, or when he did fall, it was always connected to that. But he didn't want to admit that maybe to get freedom, he would have to give that up, at least for a while. So how do you kind of talk about the intersectionality of, of addiction and the rest of our life and how we how we often have to sort of carve out a pretty big chunk to get rid of this addiction? Because, because pornography not only rewires our brain, but taps into some of the most primal parts of who we are. It's incredible. It's far more difficult than most people who are, who, who initially decide to quit, to quit. It's, it's far more difficult than most people think. It is. It's, we have to understand this has been going on for a long time. Most, like you said, most men and women who struggle deeply with pornography were exposed at an early age. They get, it had a very significant 
impact on their brain at that young age. We can go into that later if we want to. But then it went with repetition. This has been going on since middle school to high school, uh, in the trade school or college or your work life, your marriage life. Um, and so this isn't, you're not waking up as an adult and suddenly going, oh, well, I'm struggling now with pornography. No, you gave this lots of practice. And often you have used pornography to soothe your emotions, to maintain your feelings, to manage your moods. And so it is imperative for us to set healthy boundaries because we have trained our brain that when we need to relax, when we feel bored, when we feel anger or fear or frustration or lack of self-worth, there's an easy escape to pornography. And the brain is so trained in this, it has impacted our conscience. It's as the Bible would say, it has seared our conscience. And so it has impacted us in mind, body, and spirit. And so we need to understand that we need to set stronger boundaries than many others might have to do. That what might be something okay for, as you said, based on their their belief system is scotch. Maybe they want to have a scotch. That's okay for somebody else, but it's not okay for you, right? Because when you've been acting out after scotch, scotch is part of your trigger to go to pornography. In fact, it might be part of the ritual. When I, hey, I need to, I've had a bad day. I need to relax or whatever it is. And well, when I go have a scotch, I then also go to pornography. Right. So it just, we, it's even a subconscious ritual, but nonetheless, it's part of the ritual to get there. And people remain on this addiction cycle where there are beliefs about who I am as a person, and there could be doubts and all kinds of struggles in there and family of origin things that's going on. And you're like, okay, Tim, don't go too deep on me here. But then those triggers hit of social, emotional, environmental triggers that Man, and then I began obsessing about it. Well, maybe I'm going to obsess, obsess about getting to pornography. Oh, well, I don't want to do that right now. So I'm just going to go to my ritual. <laughs> the ritual becomes, I'm going to go have a scotch. And then, oops, I accidentally acted out because I had a scotch. And then after that, you feel the shame and doubt and self-worth. And that reaffirms those belief systems that remember at the top of this addiction cycle. All right. So set some healthy boundaries. Say, I don't watch TV late at night. In fact, if your wife goes to bed early or you just then doesn't, um, if, if you're setting um, a time at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, whatever it is for you, I'll meet shut off. Right. One, it's going to help you sleep better. You know, a lot of uh, men and women say, well, I use pornography because I couldn't sleep, <laughs> right? It becomes part of this whole dynamic in people's lives. And uh, so setting some significant boundaries. And part of the way you begin adding more boundaries is if you do have a slip, you do a crash investigation. What led to that crash? How did I get there? 
what was going on? And we really are curious. And and when it's, often we need to be honest with someone else about what was going on that day so they can ask us some more pertinent questions. And if especially it's helpful if you're part of a group, you can bring that to a group or a setting, um, pure desire groups, samsonsociety.com is a great place to connect with other men. Uh, SheRecovery.com is a great place to connect with other women. But you're doing a crash investigation about, okay, I acted out and I think this is why. And maybe some uh, an ally or a friend or uh, a Samson Society, a Pure Desire Brother can help you dig a little deeper into why that happened. And so as you investigate that crash, then you say, okay, well, some boundaries, additional boundaries I need to set up are this. We need to be curious about, especially if someone, you just talked about this, this man, he's gone four to six weeks. Okay, great. So he needs to begin thinking about, okay, what are the issues that I feel like I'm struggling today? And I don't know why I'm struggling today. Before acting out, you start being curious about, I feel this way. Why am I feeling this way? And, and often I could find in my own life, I could find I'm just, uh, as people are like, what's he doing? I am uh, turning off notifications here that keep popping up. And so so I could think about, okay, I, I feel like I'm struggling right now. I feel temptation. Why is that? That's a great question to ask. Why am I struggling right now? And I could point, oh, oh, you know what? Earlier that day, I had that sort of conflict with that person, and it's making me feel some self-doubt or anger and naming those emotions could then say, okay, now it's time to reach out to a friend and tell them how I'm feeling, reach out to my ally, or just simply naming those emotions and recognizing where I'm at goes, oh, I can surrender that to God. And then we can make better choices. We can make different choices. But when we just continue to meander through life and not be conscious of how, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're doing, and what we're thinking of doing, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. And we have to ask, are you, do you want to be well? <laughs> do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Well, if you do, then it's going to take some work. It's going to take some conscious effort. It's going to take a deeper leaning on Christ. It's going to take a deeper leaning on the body of Christ to really find freedom. So I have like 10 or 15 books on pornography and this book of the healing church is unique in a lot of ways. And when I first heard that Governor Nice was coming out with a book, my assumption actually was that it would be sort of an anthology collection or maybe a comprehensive summary of all of the resources that y'all have been producing for years. Um, I've been I've been using the ebooks on various topics that Covenant Eyes makes available uh, for a very long time in my own research. And for my own education, and so my 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 immediate thought was, okay, good, they're going to do a printout book, kind of like the Witherspoon Institute's book a couple of years back, right? The social costs of pornography. I kind of assumed it would be something like that. This is not that. And uh, you address in in your introduction um, why you specifically wrote this book. But for the listeners, because I really would like to encourage them to get a copy for themselves. Wh why did you write a book specifically on what the churches? get wrong about pornography because this book, so this book does include 
a lot of the um, research Covenant Eyes has put out. Um, I, I recognized some uh, chunks of research throughout the book that I that I was like, oh, I've read that in in eBooks from Covenant Eyes. So a lot of the foundational research is sort of woven in throughout the book, but the, still, the book doesn't isn't fundamentally about the same subjects. Uh, that that Covenant Eyes previous resources have been about. This is a new thing. So what made you write it, and what problems is this book addressing that Covenant Eyes' other resources don't? Right. Uh, first, you can download the introduction and the first chapter for free at thehealingchurch.com. So go to thehealingchurch.com. You can download the introduction and the first chapter to get, get a good flavor. Then you can buy it anywhere where you normally buy books online. I wrote this book specifically because I could see so many pastors and ministry leaders who wanted to support and shepherd people in their church was especially in the issue in regard to pornography, but they didn't know really where to go and they didn't have the basic understanding of why someone might struggle. That just seems like a dumb idea to struggle with pornography. Why do that? That's so self so destructive, right? And so they may they may have never been exposed to pornography at an early age. They didn't uh, use pornography in their teen years, et cetera, growing up it, so, oh, repeatedly. They haven't. And so it, the idea that someone would struggle with something like that seems so foreign. And so often what I heard pastors and men's ministry leaders, and women's ministry leaders, et cetera, say is don't do that. God's not for that. Stop that. And we would often hear the purity sermon, but the purity sermon doesn't help very much for Christians because they already know they need to be pure. They just don't know how to get there. And so many pastors and ministry leaders simply didn't understand why people get stuck, why the office stay stuck without help, and how the church, the church is God's answer, right? Uh we often, well, they'll have to figure that out on their own, or they can go find some accountability. We just don't have time for that in our church, et cetera. And we're missing also the impact in, as ministry leaders, how pornography is undermining every ministry in the local church. When we look at from children's ministries, to teen ministries, to adult and marriage ministries, senior ministries, pornography first doesn't have a demographic. If we look at Depending on the survey you're reviewing, average age for first exposure is somewhere between ages of 8 and 12, and that's the average. So we are seeing so many men and women being exposed to pornography at 5, 6, 7 years old. So we put a lot of effort into our children's ministries without equipping parents to understand pornography is coming after your child. If they're exposed, it's when. And are, will they be prepared for the day it comes to them? Well, we want to provide training for that. We offer, uh, at Covenant Eyes, we offer Safe Haven Sunday, which helps parents become more equipped to have those ongoing conversations with their kids. If we think about teen ministries, well, teens are among the most prolific users of pornography. If we look at adult, well, uh, two-thirds of men in the church, a third of women in the church said they have an ongoing struggle with pornography. When we look at marriage, in 56% of divorce cases a day, a major contributing factor to the split, according to the Matrimonial Lawyers Association, Association, was one spouse's compulsive use of pornography. So yes, you're doing a great mar women or marriage retreat, or you're doing a marriage class, but if you're not also addressing pornography, then it's like 
uh, taking your your car into a mud pit and you keep you're making progress, but your wheels are just spinning as well. You're losing traction. So we need to address pornography well in the church. So I interviewed more than 70 pastors, ministry leaders, Christian counselors, and others for this book. This is not something we, this is brand new content. We went, I went and found churches that were doing this work well. What was setting them apart? What did they learn? What did they discover? How was, how was this impacting their, and their overall church? One of the sociological studies from the University of Oklahoma that I saw, uh, well, there's a several combined in there, was there was a direct correlation between pornography use and decreased scripture reading, lack of prayer life, lowered church attendance, doubts about God, lessened feelings of closeness to God. And if you had been, uh, how often you use pornography had a direct correspondence to whether you would serve in your church over the next six years in uh, on a committee or a volunteer role. So pornography is having a direct impact. So the churches that were doing this work well found the opposite was true. People went through a safe place and a safe process and as they found freedom, imagine this, that their scripture reading increased, that their prayer life grew, that their church attendance became more constant, that uh, they were more, they were raising their hand and saying, pastor, I'll do that. So all the pastors we met who I talked to in regard to uh, doing this work well, they said, Sam, I do less work now. I don't do more right? That's what every pastor wants to hear. I don't have time to do this. And what pastors were teaching is that you don't do this work. <laughs> you equip the body to do this work. But if you don't have the right culture, if you don't create the right mission in the church for this, then you will never really step forward. And what you'll do is continue to minimize it. Your church is, is going to miss beautiful opportunities to raise disciples. Because when a stronghold is in place, it's a great opportunity for deep discipleship. And as people go through a safe process, every process that's mentioned in this book always talks about giving back. Having had a spiritual awakening, awakening I give back the freedom I have received. And so uh, people go on fire. They, they go like, I, I didn't think I could beat this. That's what a stronghold, that's what addiction does to people. It creates self-doubt. It's one of Satan's, pornography is a pernicious trap by Satan to minimize men and women's work in the kingdom. So here's an interesting question that, that I get a lot, and your book addresses this to a degree, but I, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts um, even further fleshed out, is when we're talking about pornography, and as you mentioned, and I've, I've heard this a lot, you still have pastors from the older generation and church leaders from the older generation who think that addressing the topic is going to plant the idea in people's heads, that they're actually going to create the problem by addressing the problem because they're just not familiar enough with the digital world and the extent to which this has become ubiquitous and prevalent. 
But another thing a lot of people struggle with, and, and, and I go back and forth on this a little bit myself, is exactly how to frame the issue. So it's really essential for people to understand the physiology of addiction because addiction is an explanation for why so many people are trapped. But of course, theologically speaking, it's an explanation, but it's not an excuse. And so the language we use can do different things. And I know some people who have used the language of addiction as an excuse while others have used it as an explanation. And even amongst people struggling with porn, um, you can see differences in how people choose to use that language and apply it to their situation. In one, it'll be, this helps me understand the thing that I'm fighting so I can fight it more effectively. And the other will be, this language gives me the ability to kind of say that I'm helpless, to highlight the fact that like I screwed up because this compulsive behavior is something that, that I can't be held responsible for. And the reality is that especially pornography as it is now, and Benjamin Nolot's done a bunch of a bunch of interviews on this recently as well with Exodus Cry, is it really is generally speaking like physically arousing yourself to the physical destruction and degradation of human beings, especially women. And so we we have to call out pornography for what it is. This isn't 1953 Playboy um, pinups. Those were also sinful. This is something worse. This is almost almost the antithesis of intimacy, the antithesis of sex. It's sexual cannibalism in a really really real way. That's what's on the front page of Pornhub and X-Hamster and all the other sites. So how do you approach the issue using therapeutic language where it's important to do so uh, for the, for the purposes of getting somebody free while not minimizing the sin that we are in fact talking about, which is very, very difficult. Maybe it varies from person to person, but you address it to a degree, but I'd like to hear your further thoughts. Wow. And as you, if you, when you dig into the book deeper, you'll find that there are no degrees for this. We are called to responsibility. Um, knowledge precedes understanding and understanding precedes change. If you have the knowledge of it, and say, well, everybody's struggling, then you really don't have any knowledge at all. You, you have an, ex, an excuse maker. The, the purpose of helping people understand, okay, I'm a, I have an addiction. Why do, why do I have such compulsive behavior with this? Understanding that knowledge of, that, of those issues, the knowledge of how did I get here? Why do I seem to stay stuck? Is important to bring understanding that I own all the responsibility for my sin. I cannot blame it on my wife or my spouse. Be uh, speaking on a uh, for men and women here, because they said yes or no to sex. I don't get to say, well, I don't get to blame it on anybody else. I must own my decisions. I must. I must own uh, my repentance. I must own my life change. <laughs> <laughs> I must own the relationships in my life. And there is nowhere in this book that you will find that that gets shifted at all. And so it is imperative. I do believe that when, and I've seen, we've have seen this in Hollywood, et cetera, where, oh, you know, I'm just not responsible for my sex addiction. Uh, that's why I did what I did. And so just give me a, a free pass. Uh, in fact, the opposite is true. You have to make amends for the damage you have caused without causing more damage. It is imperative that we understand that in our addictive natures, in our compulsive natures, we have caused others harm. 
And we need to make restitution for that. We need to create change. And sometimes, and, and there's right ways to do that, right? I'm not saying go out and yeah, do some study on how to how to do restitution well. How uh, because it is one say, oh well, you know, God forgave me. But that's not true repentance. That's not true sorrow. True sorrow says, hey, I'm not only am I responsible for these the damage I've caused. I need to make change, and part of my true repentance from that is making amends for that. That kind of brings me to the one chapter I wanted to bring up, um, and it, it it's a chapter that makes the book important for everybody to buy by itself because it's one of the questions that I've gotten very often, primarily emailed to me, not asked in presentations, but it's a question I'm never sure of how to answer. And one of the reasons for that is because when somebody tells you their side of the story and asks for advice, you, you never know if you have the information you need to give good advice often, especially in an email context. But you have a chapter called um, like when, when is it right to say sort of enough is enough. And this is really the question I think that most church leaders and pastors are struggling with. There's a huge plurality of views as opposed to everybody admits that pornography is sinful and, and, and it's cheating to some degree, but like, does it constitute adultery? When, when is like sort of compulsive porn use dangerous and damaging enough that people should separate? Like these are, are really, really difficult questions with no easy answers. Often they'll vary from situation to situation. And because your book drills down into so many of these um, specific questions with practical advice. I wanted to draw everybody's attention to a couple of those. And so maybe detail a little bit. Um, so first, when it comes to um, when is enough enough, um, I know you interviewed a lot of people, but how did you, how did you sort out how, how to, to, to write that chapter? Because even when I first read the title of the chapter, I'm like, okay, so that's, that, that's like almost a risky thing to tackle in some ways. Like somebody needed to, um, I wouldn't have the guts to do it or the expertise to do it at all. But I've, I've, I've heard a lot of counselors and therapists tackle that question and fail. Um, so you tackled the issue. How, how did you, how did you reach your conclusions? And, and. Yeah, just dr drill down into that one for a minute, because again, there's a lot of listeners of this podcast who have emailed me with questions like that. And so this is a sort of a desperately needed resource. Well, you're right. It's a tough chapter. In fact, it was so tough that I invited Dr. Sherry Keffer to join me uh, on in, in this book, and she wrote that chapter. <laughs> it's just phenomenal. And what that chapter really drills down into is to help ministry leaders understand how the betrayal of pornography use has caused pain in, especially for, it, it, it goes across both for both, whether it's a man or a woman who's, who's committing the behavior, but that spouse is struggling with their, with so much hurt, with so much pain, with so many different issues, spiritual abuse, et cetera, that is, is so, this, it's across the board, so damaging and hurtful. So how can we address those issues well? And so I invited her to come in and write that chapter. I The chapter right before is wrong answer, try again. And I sort of set her up for, for that. So as a pastor comes into that chapter, he has a better understanding of what is, what is at hand. So wrong answer, try again, really helps pastors and ministry leaders understand that more sex is never the answer. So often, uh, what I heard repeatedly from a number of counselors, from women I interviewed, from, from others that I, I interviewed, was 
the the spouse would go, especially for for the majority of the time, it's women who go to their pastor that might say, and then she she has garnered every ounce of courage she can to go and say, hey, my our marriage is being deeply impacted by pornography. My spouse is using pornography. He's flirting with the waitresses when they come to our table. His his lust life is out of control, and we need some help, right? And too often, the blame gets shifted back on her. What are you doing or not doing? Are you dressing provocatively enough? Are you more, you know, you name it, it becomes part of how are you contributing to the problem? Rather than, hey, we understand that he has a struggle. There's never a reason that he gets to use pornography. That's just sin, right? There's no excuses to be made here for that. And I'm not going to help defend that. And so we really, but having a clear understanding of that is imperative. And I really dive deep into that chapter. That sounds like a very surface understanding. Uh, but when you dig into that chapter, you can go, oh, the, the number of people say, oh, that was an aha moment for me. I didn't realize that what I was doing in that way. So when we step into the next chapter is when do we get to say enough is enough? And that is, it's really equipping and helping a pastor understand that she is often in deep pain and it's impactful in so many ways, more ways than they would think. But it's actually interesting because I, I had a question about the previous chapter too. I did not actually notice until you pointed this out. I read the quote from Nancy Houston. I didn't see at the top chapter by by Doctor Sherry Keffer. I hadn't even I hadn't even picked up on that. This is get leads into so this this collection of chapters and a couple of things that you write throughout. Um, one of the things that I have found is that there's a couple of very prominent. Um, American religious leaders um, and a couple of people who have written prolific books on this. And you kind of talk about this early in the book about how pornography kind of affects all of these things from, you know, ministries to like, so because pornography is everywhere, I think you said two thirds of Christian men look at, are looking at pornography regularly. I believe that was the stat that you used. If you take those numbers, you realize that like pornography is the backdrop to so much uh, of life and it impacts everything that it touches. And so one of the questions that I know is, is, is very sticky for a lot of people, but I'm thinking of, of a couple of, of major Christian figures who write about things and they're older men and they do not seem to have any awareness of the fact that almost everything they're saying now is being interpreted by young men through the lens of pornography. So let's just take, for example, um, you know, traditional approaches to gender roles and things like that, complementarianism. I've read articles from people talking about submission and I re read the article and I'm like, you know what? I see where you're coming from theologically. I see like, you know, like I come from a very, a very traditional um, religious community myself, but reading that through the lens of a guy who, if you take a guy who's been looking at porn for, for 10 years and you read that so much of, of Christian theology can be used as an excuse 
to basically, you know, get their romantic partner to participate in various things for them. Um, and their porn use is actually driving a lot of the way they respond to intimacy, the way they respond um, sexually. And so much um, good, solid theology can be used actually as an excuse for, for, for things that were created in the mind through pornography. And I think that those writing about relationships in the, in, in 2023, if they don't understand what you're going through in the book are, are going to get things wrong, not necessarily insofar as that their theology is wrong, but that they're going, to, they are not going to realize how things they're writing are going to be applied by the pornified mind of young men who have been seeing porn at ages six and seven, whose primary sex education included degradation and violence, and who probably have a very skewed version of what sexuality actually looks like. Wow. There's a lot packed in there. And I think you're, you're I think you're spot on. And indeed, uh, pornography has undermined how not only every ministry in the local church, it has undermined how people think. And so it becomes a very corruptive spiritually. And again, we keep going with mind, body, and spirit, but each part have been corrupted by pornography and it requires a mind, body, spirit perspective to come back out. And I think you just nailed it. I don't think I have much more to add to that. That is, you're right. Uh, when, man, they're, when they're seeing struggles in the relationship and she says, no, let's go back to that um, uh when we have the right to say enough is enough, because I've turned to that page and here are some uh, one one uh, graphic in there about how it impacts the spouse, the betrayed spouse. It's on page 143. It's an impact to spirituality and faith. Because if, especially when, oh, there's just so much there, but there's an impact to her identity. There's an impact to how she feels about love and the relationship. There's an impact to personal health where there's this ongoing mental struggle and it impacts her very body, right? It's impact to sexuality because if you feel like I'm being betrayed, like I have, um, is he visualizing pornography while he's with me? And you think, oh, come on, Sam, that's nuts. Listen, we have members, we've had members at Covenant Eyes call in and say, you know, he can only reach orgasm if he's also watching pornography on the TV set while he's in bed with me. I'm not enough. That's how corruptive pornography is. Uh, I've talked to many men who said, I would use pornographic thoughts while I'm having sex with my wife to be aroused. That's not God's plan. And so when you talk about how impactful this is, so emotional injury and psychological abuse, it's always her fault. Well, if it wasn't, I only use this because yada, 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 or this is yada, 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 right? It's always someone else's fault. That's the addictive mindset. And so when you are talking about how the mind and, and spirit have been so corrupted. And when they're hearing the, a theological argument, they get to, oh, well, see, I'm yada, yada, whatever it is, 
right? They get to twist it and turn it. They're turning what is good into a twisted evil. And it becomes abusive and it becomes used as a tool because they, their selfishness always wants more. There's so much in here. I guess uh, one of the final questions I'd want to ask you is, is what do you wish every single pastor, if you could tell like every pastor one thing about pornography and you knew they would get it and receive it and they would use it, what's the one, the one fact that they need to know? I don't think there is one fact. Right. I would love to, I would just love to give that, hey, if you have this one piece, then you got it all. But what uh, this book will help you do is have a deeper understanding of the issue, which creates one greater empathy. It will also create a different mindset when you are talking to men and women about pornography. Uh, it'll turn off the excuse maker, both for you <laughs> and for those that you shepherd. It will let you understand that this is a difficult issue that people didn't get here overnight. And they're probably not going to find their way out overnight. Now, God can do anything. He, he frees people from alcohol, drugs, food addiction, pornography, etc. He, he can do anything. But often he calls people on with a journey with childlike helplessness and faith to trust in his word, to trust in the body of Christ. And that deep discipleship not just simply changes the one struggle that was so impactful, but it opens up the closets. It shines light in the dark corners. And people get to learn to live in real wholeness in Christ. And if there's one thing that I, <laughs> I could say is that often we have just simply equated to, hey, he's got a, a problem with porn really has a problem with this wholeness in Christ. And when you get to deal with that one concerning issue, and they they enter into a safe place and a safe process to do that, pornography is not the only thing that becomes addressed. So much opens up, and there's a freshness in every part of their mind, body, and spirit that gets to be redeemed through Christ's power. So well, one more time, Sam, where can all the listeners get a copy of this book? Uh, it's The Healing Church. Uh, you can get a copy wherever you would normally buy books online, but you can download the first chapter and the introduction at thehealingchurch.com. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Sam Black of Covenant Eyes and the author of The Healing Church, What Churches Get Wrong About Pornography and How to Fix It. If you'd like to subscribe to listen to past shows or get future shows delivered to you, please go to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast tab. You will find our show there as well as everywhere else where you get your content. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.